Well, again, welcome to all those in our sanctuary, those of you online, grateful to have you with us. Going to encourage you, if you're able to do so, find a Bible or your smartphone and look up Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. That's where we're going to be at today in a sermon that's titled Open House. And you'll see that up there on the screen as we were reading through this. I really tried hard to think of something a little more original for a title, but that, that's all I got today. So you're going to be stuck with open house, but hopefully we'll learn and grow uh, through this word uh, today. As we start today, we're going to look at the verses 1 through 14 is where we're going to be preaching from. I won't be able to go through every verse, although I would love to do that. There's a lot of different things going on in these verses. So I've tried to find some themes Uh, that we can uh, support and rally around. And I think that we have three, at least in this text, that we're going to share today. And in order to kind of get us going uh, in the right spirit of things, in the right frame of mind, I'm going to ask us as a congregation, right where we're at, just look at the screen there. And uh, this is the the version I use, the New American Standard Bible. I like us to read it all together in that version. Then you can look on in your versions in your laps or two. But let's read this verse together. Uh, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It's really a a great summary of much of what I'm going to uh, share today. Let's read this together as we go. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. Heavenly Father, this is your word for us, and we would pray even now, God, that you would remove the distractions of our life and even of this moment, and that you would allow us just to focus upon your word. Thank you for teaching us already through music and through song and through testimony. And I would pray now, Lord, that your word would do a work in our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open house. It's interesting because uh, I was thinking about the way to introduce the message. And at home, it's just glory and I at home. Of course, our boys are growing up and they're gone. And uh, it's interesting. We don't watch a lot of TV necessarily, uh, but it's so funny. You can always tell who the last person was that watched TV at our house. All right, you can always tell. So we have a kitchen. We have a TV in the kitchen, which we do not watch when we eat. We have a rule at home. We just look at each other and we talk. We try not to use our phones, don't watch TV. But when we're prepping supper, And of course, when I'm cleaning up after every meal, as I do, because Gloria cooks every meal, that's our deal, uh, we have the TV on to kind of get caught up on things. And then I confess that when I'm home, uh, on a day that I'm home and I have lunch at home, I flip on the TV and I watch a little TV as I eat my lunch, you know? Well, if Kirk gets done watching TV, guess what channel it's on? ESPN, all right, and it is up loud. The volume is full bore and it's loud. If I come home and I turn the TV on and it's on ESPN, I'm going to know I was the last one to watch TV. If I come home and turn the TV on and I find one of about 700 shows about houses and remodeling and selling and buying and building and all this stuff, kitchens and bathrooms and bedrooms and carpets and floors and paint and cab, guess who is watching TV? Gloria, all right? Because she loves those home shows. She loves all those shows that talks about these houses. I could care less. Give me ESPN, all right? But the point is, and it kind of brings me to where I want to go to today, this idea of the open house. If you've bought a house, probably ever, what's one thing you have done other than spend a lot of money? You have gone to an open house, haven't you? All of us probably have gone to open houses, and usually we like to go to open houses at places we can't ever even think of affording, but it's kind of nice to look around what they're doing in there, right? We all do that. But we do that because we want to see the quality and characteristics of the house. 
that we may want to buy or may want to live in. Well, today, Solomon is going to play real estate agent. Can I say that? Can I say Solomon is going to be the real estate agent, and he's going to take us to three open houses, and he's going to describe for us the qualities and characteristics of these three open houses, and we need to determine where we shall live, all right? So the theme is real simple. What do we learn from Solomon as he takes us on this journey of three open houses, all right? So open house number one, we're going to begin at a place you probably wouldn't think we'd want to begin at, but it is the house of mourning, the house of mourning. Now, go with me in the scriptures, if you would. I love I love how Solomon starts off here uh, in the text. And notice what he does in chapter 7, verse 1. He starts off immediately with a comparison. And I'll explain why he does that. It says, A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Verse 2, It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of Feasting, So that's where I get that idea of the first point, the house of mourning. Now, what Solomon is doing, first of all, in these 11 verses, or 14 verses, 11 times Solomon uses um, a way of comparison. He uses this idea of better than. He's going to compare these things. And what that's supposed to do for us is that we're supposed to recognize what is better than, and then, of course, we want to pursue that which is better. All right. So Solomon is going to start us off in that way, and he starts course here right in verse 1. He talks about how a good name is better than fine ointment or perfume. Now, again, just briefly, we acknowledge how powerful a good name is. And we acknowledge how hard it is to acquire a good name, but how easy it is to lose a good name. And even despite that, this, no matter how, how good that name is, do you notice what Solomon does? He begins this idea of contrasting. He says a, a, a good name is really good, it's better than ointment. But then he also comes up and he says, but, but what's even better? He says the day of death is the day better than the day of one's birth. The day of death is better than one's birth. And I thought about this and I thought, boy, people are going to think we want to be depressed today because we're talking about the day of death and the day of birth. But then I realized, even in my own ministry, uh, it's so interesting, and this is going to, and I'm going to apologize in advance, I'll probably offend some of you today, but this, this is probably true. I think if you ask any pastor, if they're truthful, they would answer in the same way. What would a pastor rather do? Be involved in a wedding or a funeral? A funeral. And you get, that, what's wrong with that guy? He's weird. Do you know why that is? Because at a wedding, our minds are way elsewhere, <laughs> We're getting married, and, and, that's, and that's a good thing. That's, that's really a good thing. But oftentimes our minds are focused on fun and the future and all the good things that are going to happen, and oh, this is great, this is good, this is awesome, all these things. But what happens at a funeral? We're focused on one thing. We're focused on the brevity of life and the seriousness of eternity, and it allows a pastor to minister in that way. So I think most pastors would rather, would rather do a funeral than a wedding only because of the audience's heart and reception to the message that they would provide and they would give. And that's why I believe Solomon says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. 
because it's in that house of mourning that people are ready to listen. It's in that house of mourning that people's hearts are more open to receive the truths of God's word. And therefore, Solomon talks about the idea of the day of death being better than the day of birth. Now, I will argue, however, throughout this, this whole book, uh, Solomon is talking also about the believer. And I recognize he's, he's not as clear on this, but as we go into the New Testament, we would rightly recognize how true it is that particularly for the believer, the day of death is better than the day of birth. And why, why is that? Think about this. Why would that be true for the believer in particular? Well, number one, the day of birth ushers us into a life that is at best brief. All right? Now, it's long to us. But in the eyes of God and in the eyes of history and in the eyes of eternity, our life is but brief. So birth ushers us into a life that is at best brief. All right? Birth ushers us into a life that is literally full of toil. Right? The life is, is toilsome at times, isn't it? And death ushers us into an eternity of rest. Birth brings us into a life that is full of sin and of failing, whereas death for the believer ushers them into a life that, uh, of, of grace and of fullness and of completeness and of sinless perfection. Birth brings us into a life where we oftentimes receive condemnation and judgment and all of these things. But death ushers us into a life of eternity, of hope and promise and of eternal joy in the Lord. So when we begin to think about those things, we begin to recognize that the house of mourning, although it's a house we don't oftentimes like to be part of, it's a house that we learn a lot about ourselves and about our God. And this house of mourning is honestly a good place to find ourselves because it prepares us to receive God's truth. It prepares us to receive what God has to say about eternity. And I would dare say today that, that so often we want to avoid that house of mourning when in reality it is the house of mourning that, that teaches us so very much. And it's that house that, that we can oftentimes learn not only about ourselves but about our God. And all of these are reasons that we know this. And I think it's true that we recognize that as believers then we know how to, to avoid even this, this death apart from God. And that's really part of this whole house of mourning is that as we think about life and, and why for the believer uh, death is better than life because what does death do? Death for the believer, what happens to us? Death for the believer, we are ushered into the very presence of God. That, that's why I think Solomon can say uh, that death is better than life because in death we are ushered into the very presence of God. And I believe with all my heart that's one of the things that, that we fail at and I think most, probably most evangelical churches fail at. We, we don't talk enough about death. We don't talk about dying because we don't want to depress people, right? We, we want to just make everybody feel good, right? No. We need to talk about death. We need to talk about dying. Scripture is really clear. And I think that's what Solomon is doing in this house of mourning. He's making us realize the brevity of human life, the reality that unless the Lord tarries, we're, we're all going to die. Every one of us is going to die. And we need to be prepared. We need to be ready for that. And Solomon is addressing that topic and that issue. In fact, so, uh, 
Paul is probably one of the best that I believe that, that describes this just really succinctly and shortly. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Remember what Paul says? Paul says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I think Paul had the right perspective recognizing that, that even as we would die, as we would pass from this life, a believer is ushered into the presence of Jesus. And therefore, all the more important it is that we would recognize the shortness of our time and we would recognize how we prepare for the eternity that awaits us. And of course, we would recognize throughout all of the teaching of Scripture that there's only one way to prepare for the eternity that awaits us, and that is to prepare by trusting in Christ. We prepare by trusting in Jesus. We prepare even today as we come and as we confess sin. Do you know that in that confession of sin, do you know what you're doing is you would confess sin essentially and ultimately you're also confessing then your need for a Savior because you can't save yourself. And if you're thinking you can save yourself today, you are woefully misled. You can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save. But as we come and as we confess that sin, what we're doing is that we are admitting that we cannot save ourselves and we call forth upon the grace of God to enter in and to save us even in fact from ourselves so I want you to recognize that today and I want us to recognize that as we think about this house of mourning this, this whole idea of what it is this, this house of death and this house of mourning that sometimes we do have a troubled face notice what Solomon says in verse 3 he says sorrow is better than laughter and when a face is sad a heart may be happy now it's interesting when we think about that Solomon is not trying to make us depressed, but really Solomon is telling us that sometimes our faces aren't jovial and happy, and sometimes they are sad, but sometimes sadness teaches us much, because sometimes the sad face tells us that what's going on is that we recognize that our life is short. We recognize that we are sinful. We recognize some of these failings that we would have so having a sad face oftentimes doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. Sometimes a sad face means that there's actually tremendous growth internally. And Solomon goes on here and talks about this idea not only of the sad face, but he also talks about the idea of being uh, in the house of mourning and the house of pleasure. I love verse 4. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. And the idea, of course, there is this idea of distinguishing between the two. And, and it's hard for us to do that, but I think it's important to recognize this. C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone. Pain is God's megaphone. And I think we need to recognize that oftentimes God uses pain. God uses mourning. God uses sadness. And he uses it for good. He uses it not, not to drive you away from God, but what? But to drive you, to draw you towards Him. And sadly, so many of us, we're, we just want to flee the house of mourning. We want to get into that house of pleasure. But God's Word tells us and describes to us, and I, I'm confident it's probably true, if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably true in your life too, that it is the worst of times that oftentimes teaches us the best about ourselves and about our God. 
And rather than trying to avoid, rather than trying to run from, we need to be people that recognize that God uses the house of mourning to teach us and to equip us and especially to enable us to recognize our need for him, the need that we would have to depend upon him in each and every circumstance. And I think Solomon is speaking to that here in the house of mourning. And then I'll close out this first point by looking at verse 8. Notice the first part of verse 8. It says, The end of a matter is better than its beginning. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. And I have always appreciated that text and the teaching that that text gives to us. Because what it tells us is that what's important is not how, how good we start, but it's how we finish. And I think that's a convicting word for believers today. Because I think there's a temptation for us. We start strong. We come to be saved. You come to realize the grace that you have in Jesus. And, and there's a, a fire and there's an urgency for Christ. But then what happens? Stuff happens. Life happens. And gradually this zeal and this fervor and this vigor for the Lord slowly begins to fade away. And there's a decrescendo, if you would, in our life regarding that. And I think it's important that we would recognize here that God's word tells us that the end of the matter is even more important than the beginning. God, God is concerned how you start, believe me. But God is also concerned how you end. And we too need to be a people that end well. We, we need to be a people to recognize that we want to be a people that die well. We want to live well, but we also want to be, be a people that die well. How do we do that? How do we do that? Number one, I think, is this, that as we walk through our life, if we want to know that the end is better than the beginning, we need to recognize that we are to learn throughout all of life. I know that I've learned a lot, last couple of years especially. Made a lot of mistakes, but learned a lot of things in that process. And I think that, that we can look at this as the end better than the beginning when we learn from that. I think that we can also grow from this and learn from that when we begin to grow in Christ-likeness, that that's part of the purpose sometimes of these trials, some of the purpose of these difficulties that God would bring us through, that we are to be able to grow in Christ-likeness. I think there's a desire here, too, to recognize that our sin grieves God, that we would recognize that, that we grieve God in our sin and that we would all the more not only recognize that, but that that would break our hearts. And then that we would be a people, too, that finally gain an appreciation for two things, opposite things. Gain an appreciation for the shortness of time and the length of eternity. The shortness of time and the length of eternity. And I think oftentimes these are lessons that God teaches us well in the house of mourning. And therefore, Solomon draws attention to this as this is a house that oftentimes we want to avoid, but it's oftentimes that house that best fits our needs in that given time. All right, point number two, the second house is the house of feasting. And uh, that's interesting because, again, Solomon makes that contrast, I think it was in verse four specifically, yeah, house of, uh, or verse two rather, house of mourning versus the house of feasting. In verse four, it's called the house of pleasure. But I think in either of those, you can kind of see the idea, this is the house that is the house of the fool. Now, Solomon is not declaring that fun is bad, all right? 
All the way through this book, we've learned that Solomon has declared that we are to enjoy the good gifts that God gives to us. We are to be a people that, excuse me, enjoy that and embrace that and appreciate all that God does for us. But what Solomon is talking about here is that there is this house of feasting or this house of pleasure where what begins to consume the individual is the idea of just having fun. And we've talked about that before. When our whole life begins to focus upon the next great thing we get to do and the next fun thing we do and this and that. And what happens is that detracts, dear friends, that detracts from the seriousness and the soberness that we are to have when we do go through life. I do think that life calls us to be sober. I think that life calls us to be serious. And, and Solomon is talking about here this house of feasting where our motive is only upon ourselves. This motive is only upon our pleasure. The motive is only upon filling our bellies and our hearts with good and fun things. And sadly, probably all of us have identified people that are living that way. And, and maybe we have lived that way. Maybe, maybe you're living that way now where life is just one big constant party. That's what Solomon is warning against. That's what he's saying. The house of feasting sounds like a great house, but it's not a house we want to be in. Because the house of feasting, there is a deliberate, if you would, avoiding of the hard things of life. There is a deliberate avoiding of some of the things that God would desire to teach us. And rather than reflecting upon those things, we become a people that are focused upon pleasure and upon having fun. And we can look all over the world and see this happening right in our own nation. Just having fun, just this idea of pleasure, whatever pleases me, whatever is good, that's what I want to do. And Solomon describes that in verse 6. If you want to go there, notice what he says. He says, For the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. And Solomon is making that comparison. And he says, And this too is futility. And what Solomon is comparing here, I believe, is this whole idea of the laughter of the fool. The laughter of the fool is the laughter of the one seeking pleasure, seeking fun. And this loud, crackling sound of this thorn bush, it's kind of irritating. You hear these thorns burn, but they, they burn but very shortly and of no value. And that's what Solomon is saying. He said, that's what it's like to live in the house of pleasure. That joy is short-lived and it's of no value. And he's making the case today that we need to recognize the futility of that that we need to recognize that that's not what God desires. He doesn't desire us to live in this house of feasting, but he desires us to look more to the house of mourning. And what oftentimes this verse 6 describes is the individual, and then Solomon has talked about this all the way through this book. This is a picture of the individual that is living completely under the sun. This is the individual that is trusting in the things under the sun. And, and what we mean by that is that those things absent of God. Remember we talked about the one who is over the sun? And then we talked about things under the sun. And Solomon is speaking to the individual in this house of feasting, this house of pleasure, that is focusing only on those things under the sun. And what this individual essentially is doing is something we all need to be on guard for because we all fall into this trap equally uh, as easily as anybody else. And it's this. God has given to us so, so many good and gracious gifts and what is so hard for us at times is to recognize that these gifts are a token, if you would, of his love and of his care and of his provision. But what we have done is that we have worshipped the gifts rather than the one who gave them. That's what it is to live in the house of feasting. When you worship the gifts and not the one who gave them. When you worship 
creation's stuff rather than the creator. And that's what Solomon, I believe, in verse 6 and following is warning us about in this text, how careful we need to be that that doesn't describe who we become. And then verse 8 and 9, again, we won't go through all this, but notice it says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And again, we see this idea throughout this text that pride and anger... (laughs) are part of this house of feasting and, and partially because we get angry when we don't get our way. One, and it really a sure way to tell if we're going God's way or man's way is this. Do you get mad every time something doesn't go your way? Do you get angry and upset when timing doesn't work out as you planned? And that's really one of those, I think, a sure sign that we're not following in God's plan when we get mad about plans that don't always work out. And the text goes on, not even talking about anger and talking about pride, but then notice also the text speaks about the past. I love verse 10. It says, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom, uh, along with inheritance, is good. And what this verse, these verses are talking about here is that so often we are prone in this house of feasting not only to look only to the present, but also to look how great the past was. <laughs> and we glorify the past. And there's a danger in that we're called upon to learn from the past, but we cannot glorify the past. We need to live in the present, of course. We need to look to the future. And Solomon is warning us against this idea of of living in the past and trying to recreate the past. And, And he's saying that we need to look ahead to the future and live in the present. And there's a danger in trying to hold to the past. And again, not that the past is bad, but past cannot uh, be that which we cling to and seek uh, to recreate. And that's just a little bit on what the house of feasting would look like in accordance to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I want to take and save a few minutes to close today to talk about the third place that I think we need to recognize, and that's the house of God. That's the third open house that Solomon takes us to, the house of God. That's primarily in verses 13 and 14 of this text. And observe what verses 13 and 14 say. It says, Consider the work of God, who is able to straighten what he has bent. In the day of prosperity be happy, but in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other. First of all, I want to make mention, I love these two verses. I've got them highlighted in my Bible. I'd recommend them the same for you. A couple things to remember in closing. Number one, these texts or these two verses teach us and tell us that God is indeed sovereign. That God's hand is all-powerful. God's hand is almighty. God's hand is sovereign. And dear friends, I want you to know that the God whom we serve is not a God of chance. So whatever place we find ourselves in our life right now, that thing or that place has passed through the hands of God. And I recognize that's kind of hard to fathom, especially if you're miserable right now and if things are really difficult. But I want you to recognize that, that God is in control, that there, nothing happens just randomly or by choice. God, God's not up there just kind of rolling the dice regarding your life and kind of seeing what turns up. That's not the idea here. But God is in control. God is not a God of chance. But I do believe these verses teach us something else. When it talks about you cannot straighten what he has bent, what that verse tells us is that in God's providence and in God's will, there are certain things, of course, that we're not going to be able to change. Now, you may not like what's going on. 
You, you may not like a cancer diagnosis. You may not like a, a family difficulty. You may not like losing your job. You may not like all of these things. And in fact, oftentimes these difficult things happen to us and we despise them. But what this text is teaching us is that we need to recognize that in both the good and the bad, that these things all flow from God ultimately and finally. And of course, we have to recognize that the days of adversity and the days of blessing ultimately are from the hand of God. And what this text teaches us is that we are best called today, rather than bemoaning and griping and complaining, that we would receive each day for what it is, a very gift of God. And that we would live in accordance to God's grace and in accordance to God's strength as we navigate the life that God has laid before us. And my prayer today is that we would do so, that we would be a people that recognize and call forth the house that we live in, and that we would be a people to desire that we would make the best of each and every day, whether it be a day of adversity or a day of goodness. The Puritans called it the day of the crooked lot. I love that phrase, crooked lot. And some of you are in the midst of that right now. You're facing a crooked lot. Things are hard. Things are difficult. And yet, I want to assure you today that in the good days and in the bad days, God, God is at work, and God is molding, and He is making, and God is performing, even in circumstances that we may not fully understand. When God is in the house, we are enabled to live wisely and die well. Heavenly Father, to that end, guide us, as we all have given the breath of life today, we pray that we would live wisely, but also recognize that even in the course of our living, may we also prepare to die. And Lord, may we live well, and may we die well. In Christ Jesus, we pray this. Amen.